This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Hi everyone, I'm Stephanie Gordon with Top Crop Manager. This is the last installment in our Plant Health Summit series. If you've been joining us regularly, you know that we've been chatting with speakers from our Plant Health Summit, which took place in late February 2020 in Saskatoon. Our keynote speaker talked about next generation technologies for tomorrow's crops. I caught up with him after to ask what this all means in layman's terms and what we can learn from his experiences working in agriculture globally. At the end, I ask how he's enjoying Saskatoon So stick around for that. So the research program uh, that I have, so again, we use upstream work. We use a lot of genomics, genetic, and systems biology research in general to improve root mineral water acquisition efficiency, resilience to climate change and other abiotic stresses and to help improve sustainability in terms of reducing carbon footprint and also greenhouse gas emission through, through better root and root microbiomes. Leon Cochin, a professor of plant science and associate director of Global Institute for Food Security. Okay. And tell me a bit more about your background and how you came to the position you are today. Okay, so I was a professor at Cornell University from 1985 to 2016 in plant biology. And then started getting interested in how plants adapt to environments, abiotic environments that have problems related to that, don't have enough NPK or micronutrients, have extremes in pH, toxic metals, you did a lot of work on heavy metals. And then as climate change came along, started looking more at drought too. But then that got me into this whole root architecture, which is really important. Deeper roots for water, shallower roots for phosphorus, and that got us into root phenotyping and how high throughput digital phenotyping. So anyway, I was building that program and then I was contacted by the University of Saskatchewan for this, you know, because these Canada Excellence Research Chairs, the university gets them, asked me to come interview and I I was blown away by being, I come from Cornell, a great agriculture university, but there's no real agriculture around there. It's dairy and, you know, a little bit of apple orchards, but here you're in the breadbasket. It's pretty amazing all the food that's produced in this province. Without, I know they have great large amounts of fertile soils, but not not, a, not as much water as I thought would, you would expect for such a, a, a big area. But I really liked the, where the university was going, and and uh, and having the agriculture around us. So um, it was an easy decision. I think after I interviewed, I was you know ready to say yes, and pretty quickly they asked me, and I said yes, and we moved from yet a, a cold place to an even colder place from Ithaca, New York, to here. So my wife and I. So. What were the winters like there? Well, Ithaca winters are in many ways worse, a lot of snow. And it's very, it's all carved out by glaciers. So I mean, I slid off the road five or six times the first year. And uh, it's also, you know, it's cold, but I'd say it's probably 15 degrees warmer than here. But it's a wet, a lot of snow, more like Toronto probably, and gray. So here, you know, sunny, dry, and sometimes bitterly cold, right? So if I were to break down what you're doing into kind of more layman's terms, you're really just interested in how plants survive really tough environments yep. and kind of what we can do on the breeding side to speed up evolution. Yep, that's perfect. Yeah, you did. Okay. that's a great way to describe it. Yep, exactly. You know, plants 
when they encounter a stress, they're sessile. They can't get up and move. We can move. You know, you see these migrations because they're, you know, food food insecurity um, doesn't solve the problem, but you can do it at least. I mean, plants have to take it. So they've evolved some quite sophisticated, elegant, you know, strategies to deal with not enough water, not enough nutrients, to extremes of pH, toxic metals, things mm -hmm. like that. And you talked about kind of moving from a dairy dominant area into the bread basket of Canada, but you also do a lot of work in developing countries. Mm -hmm. What's that like to see the agriculture development there? Well, it's, it's I mean, it's sometimes frustrating because it's not just agriculture, the infrastructure is not there. Just the roads to get to the farms. I mean, there's got to be, they're starting to invest more. Um, we're trying to do field research on sites that have been poorly characterized. They don't have irrigation. So there's got to be a lot. It's hard to do work, so you've got to be ready to solve a lot of problems that we take for granted here in doing just the research side. So that's why it ended up a lot of our collaboration was more with big international organizations like ICRASAT, the CGR centers, because they do have the money to put in the infrastructure. But that really is a big investment that is being made and has to be made more for like in Africa. So it's pretty rewarding when you actually make progress. So, um, And part of the reason you were chosen as our keynote speaker today was because you kind of have this global experience. And even though we always like to tie it back to what's relevant to Western Canadian growers, there's still so much to be learned from outside your industry, outside your region. So what's something that Western Canadian farmers can learn from farmers around the world or... Right what well, you've seen. Well, I think it's broader than just the farmers, it's society in general. So if you look at data on global insecurity, um, civil wars and all of that, terrorism, pretty close correlation with food insecurity. You'll see food prices rising and then you have things like the Arab Spring following. So there's lots of data on that, that food security is critical for worldwide stability and that we're a worldwide community. Look at coronavirus now. We're all affected by things that happen elsewhere. So just on a general world, you know, Canada's part of the world, they're going to be affected. But also for Canadian farmers, what's our biggest markets now? China? Turns out, I guess Bangladesh is our number four. So you have these countries that 30 years ago were developing, and they've become developed, and they have most of the people, India and China, and Bangladesh is moving in on 200 million people. This creates... You get the developing world to move, and they all move from developing toward develop first with agriculture and food security. But you have new markets, you know. I was shocked to find out because uh, they're our fourth biggest trading partner, Bangladesh. I never would have imagined it. So, um, so yeah, so there's markets, new markets for farmers. So this is not just, oh, you're, you know, saving the world, but it doesn't help us. There are opportunities. So. Yeah. And I guess there's also opportunities because just as much as there's an opportunity for Western Canadian farmers to learn from other countries, what can they kind of learn from what's happening here? We have well, some that, of the best and that, producers. And that's a lot of what we're doing, right? Yeah. I mean, we're bringing all the advanced technology, and we and we didn't bring farmers, but we brought my friend the university people working on post-harvest processing and things like that, which is you know so all these things that have, we take for granted and our well-developed infrastructure here. There, they get flooding, all the seed and all the crops sit on the ground and rot. So yeah, they they have much to learn from us in terms of a very advanced, you know, maybe one of the most agricultural nations in the world. Particularly when you think we only have 30, 35 million people. That's amazing, that's less, I, can't, I grew up in California, that's, California has 43 million, so. 
you know, what we do here is pretty amazing with this. I mean, we do have tremendous resources, lots of farmland and others, but uh, yeah, they have a lot. What we bring to them is what our farmers have done, and, and particularly they work pretty closely with science here. They embrace science more here. You know, uh, Roundup Ready canola came along, they didn't have any worries because they saw it fitted into uh, the no-till, low-till. Um, of course, now Roundup is a dirty word because it may be um, hazardous, but the bottom line is technology is, is, is an integral part of agriculture and always has. So, um, and, uh, and, and we really need it more than ever if we're going to feed the seven billion people in 2050, so. Yeah, and, and it's interesting how you mentioned how ag is, is so big in Canada, because right now the climate is, is quite stressful for everyone in Canada who is in agriculture, where we know it's a very big um, contributor to the economy. Is there anything that you feel on a more kind of bird's eye view worldwide stage, what is something that the modern grower or producer should be learning about or getting to know, or what do you think is an essential skill set that they would need to, I guess, remain competitive right. in the future? Now, I'm going to be answering this from a background of ignorance about the real world of farm learning, but you know, I have been a laboratory researcher. Now that I'm here, I'm working more closely with farmers some, to some degree. But I do see agriculture is now, as you've seen some of the chunks, a big science, and it's a big technology science. And that's where you're going to see, particularly with the big farms here. And you, I mean, they're using drones now just to look at, you know, the 50,000 acres. But I do see, I mean, breeding is going to become digital breeding, big data breeding. And you're going to be able to measure so many more traits because you can put all these different sensors on, on, on drones, for example, that measure not just size or color or... But they can measure, are they water stressed? Are they nutrient stressed? What's the photosynthesis like? Things like that. But again, it's going to take an edge, like I was listening to the talk before mine, we're going to have to set up a new educational infrastructure, and we will. And I'm seeing it here. The farmers here are, are a lot of them have, most of them I talk to have degrees from the University of Saskatchewan, you know, at least in around here. And, and they seem, they're really smart and they're pretty progressive. They're, 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 they, they're open to change. I think farmers, people say farmers are conservative, but they know they've got to adapt to all sorts of things that aren't expected every year almost. So, yeah. and with climate change, it's really getting wacky. So, so yeah, I think I don't. I think they already know. They've, uh, there's a new wave of agriculture coming along, and I I think it's going to make big improvements. So, but uh, but I'm still waiting to see. I mean, big data is gradually kind of getting in there, but it's a uh, um, it's slower than I thought. Well, just a, a year ago, I was hearing. Man, we're going to have self-driving cars in a couple of years. I haven't heard anything recently about that. So, so I think some of it will be a little slower. But we're talking about a few years. Within 10 years, I think the big farms will all be much more automated, which also means you know, fewer, less need for people to, to work. But I don't think our farms, it doesn't seem like they employ a lot of people. Do they? It's pretty amazing. You know, you know, we still have family farm, big family farm. So they have to automate, right? They did. They, you know, they they jumped on precision agriculture and, and big automation and built a lot of it here. Yeah. You know, seeders that can seed, uh, you know, for a no-till, so where you don't till things like that. A lot of that was invented here. So it's a pretty progressive area. So I think I'm preaching to the choir and with a lot of the farmers, at least when I, the few that I talk to. So. Yeah. So that's really good that you mentioned that. That you know especially people here are innovators, the whole intercrop innovators, I see that here. But it's kind of like Joy was saying in her presentation where she talked about 
tech and farming where she was like if you don't even know your cost of production then you know you shouldn't be moving to the next stage where you're yeah. trying to deal with all this extra data it's like know your basics and then start moving forward yeah. don't jump on something just because it's new we have the same thing in science yeah. you know um, and you know I, I tend to say what am I trying to do and what do I need and if I don't need big fancy equipment I don't use it farmers you know, they, they tended, I think, when all the, I know in the U.S., when all the big ex expensive equipment came out, they all bought it, and, and a lot of them went broke. And I see in upstate New York, the Amish farmers have bought up a lot of the farms because they're more frugal, and uh, these farms went broke. So, and I guess they go back to farming. And, and so anyway, the bottom line is I agree with you. We need, and I don't know much about this, but she was saying, we need an, an educational infrastructure. Whether that's, you know, I think a lot of the farmers I run into got degrees from here, and now their kids are getting degrees from, like here being University of Saskatchewan and the other agricultural universities. Wait, so let's let's talk about that. You know, 100 years ago or whatever, you know, when you were a farmer, you had your crops to tend to. Now, farmers of the modern day, they have to be their own grain marketers. They have to do be drone operators, yep. precision ag, and agronomists, and and everything, and I don't know, social media personalities, and there's like so many different things that they have to do. The science, the business, it's a lot for yeah. one person. Yep, so, I know. I feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, we're all expected to do more. I mean, it never gets less. I don't. Yeah, I don't know when you have such a small cadre, you know, running a farm, how you would do it. And I don't know much about. I'm sure we have a strong outreach, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, educating and helping the farmers through extension and things like that. Celebrating its 35th anniversary this year, ANL Canada Laboratories is an innovative, research-driven technology company focused on sustainable development. Through leading expertise, modern laboratory facilities, and a strong customer focus, ANL serves a wide range of industries, including agriculture, environmental, food, and pharma globally. ANL's Vitellus Soil Health Test is the next generation soil health test and recommendations package used by farmers and crop consultants across Canada to make more informed decisions on their application of nutrients and on managing and improving their soil. To learn more, check out alcanada.com and reach out to your local ANL rep. So one thing I want to ask you is, what do you think are some misconceptions that people might have about the work you're doing or about, you know, global food security and what it, the demands on agriculture is because of it? Yeah, I think there's several. One is, I mentioned earlier, I think the average Canadian, and for me, the average Can American before that, our food is so cheap. We don't, I mean, yeah, we say food prices are going up, but it's such a relatively small amount of our of our income, we take it for granted. So we look at food insecurity elsewhere and don't give it much thought and don't realize it impacts us, you know, immigrants that are leaving from a horrible situation. So again, world security depends on food security. So there's, there's that issue. And then I think, not as much in Canada, but the fear, the kind of irrational fears that have spread to kind of an anti-science you know, it started with GMOs, which I've always worked for the public. <laughs> I don't work for Monsanto, which doesn't exist anymore, actually. And we're going, good God, there's, learn a little science, man. There's nothing, I can't, there's, I mean, there there are, a few, yeah, there are times that altering the genetics structure of a genome can be negative, but it's, 
they're tested for. It's and now it's becoming so precise. It's that's going to be almost be unheard of. So yeah. I those I think the fear of science, and I see this more in the U.S., especially in the last three years, is. But I see it in Europe. They're still. I mean, you know, they didn't in the U.S. At least we approved gene editing. It's not a GMO crop now. There's no sign of anything left behind, so you can't say with antibiotic resistance. So, um, but in Europe, they're still saying, nope, not acceptable. They're going to fall behind in agriculture. Yeah. I think once they do, I think uh, things, they, their tone will change because it's not based on science. And I have no reason to advocate it. If there were problems, I'd look at them. But we don't, we've been eating GMO crops for 40 years now. Mm -hmm. you know, where are the problems? So based on that, you did a full presentation about the work that you're doing to kind of help crops in very, I guess, tough environments, very acidic, high levels of, you know, materials that they don't really need. What's one thing that you feel farmers and agronomists can take away from your presentation today to kind of help them improve their own crop management practices? I think the thing that at least the breeders have to start thinking about is roots. That's the last breeding frontier. And again, I sympathize. They're not going to breed for root tape. They can't see the roots. Until we can come up with some tools that will enable them to, without being too expensive. But we can do a lot of indirect research. And, and like we're doing, we're breeding for improved root traits. So I think that's an area, particularly with climate change, if you, I mean, it is the era of roots because we've got to get more water into plants. I've got to be like plants that can survive with less water. And that is a whole plant response, but we've focused on the above ground part of it. Know, the, the leaves have little valves that regulate the water that leaves the plant. We focus on those things. We've got to start focusing more on the roots. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, I've got a few ideas on how we could use drones to image shoots and predict what the roots will look like. And then that could be f facilitated into a broad breeding program. So. Yeah. And we had an audience question about some of the soils here in Western Canada that are kind of, I guess, becoming more acidic. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something about the management practices farmers mm -hmm. are using that could actually be degrading the soil. Yep. Can you explain a bit more? About yeah, I think, you know, overuse of ammonia fertilizer can acidify, does acidify soils in those processes. And uh, and you were, we've seen that. I, I said it was really dramatic in Australia because they have ancient weathered soils that don't have much what we call buffering capacity to control the pH. And within 10 years, they turn soils, wide expanses, into acid soils. But I've been hearing parts of Saskatchewan, there's patches of acid soils. Our, our, the, the gentleman there yeah. was saying Boreal that. forest, yeah. Right. So, yeah, boreal forest, but also in the crop, because you talked about canola. So I'm, I mean, we heard about it from my grad student talking with his colleagues who used to work with a nutrient. And there's, there's regions of acid soils in, in the province where the canola doesn't grow so well. You know, there are patches now, but it's getting worse. And I didn't think about sulfur fertilization because that's one of the ways you acidify soils is to add sulfur because it makes sulfuric acid, so, you know, as it's oxidized. So, so there's, yeah, I think the management practices, and again, we're, we always want to reduce fertilizer inputs because both N and P are costly. N's costly from an energy point of view. And P is getting more costly because we we're, we're have a limited, finite amount of it. It's kind of scary when most of the mines for phosphorus in the world are located in this one region around Morocco. So somebody could buy all those up and, and have a <laughs> have giving a, someone ideas. <laughs> you know, have a monopoly, you know. Yeah. But they also have big environmental costs too. Yeah. So again, developing crops that use less fertilizer will be more sustainable. And with the whole microbiome thing, we may be able to develop crops that 
healthier microbiomes, not just meaning the roots grow better and they take up more nutrients, but can minimize the release of greenhouse gases, not just CO2, but misuse of fertilizers. And if you till, you, you release nitrous oxides, which are, I think, 100 times stronger greenhouse gas. So um, I think those sorts of things will increase the enhance the sustainability. So. Well, in, in Western Canada, no-till is very big kind of for that reason. Right. This but, has been a, a center for it, right? Yeah, for the development of it, yeah. So it takes a long time, especially when we're talking about soil health, to kind of see the the impacts of the work that you're doing. It's hard to build soil organic matter, and it's kind of like a long-term approach that you take. So when you look at the flip side, which is about, you know, overuse of fertilizer or whatever to make, or like soils can degrade and become acidic, is the rate of change of soil degradation similar to when you're trying to improve the soil? Say you're using these practices, how fast can you really like ruin? Well, this is really kind of getting out of my area of expertise. Yeah. There's a lot of awareness now that we we have to stop degrading our soils, and I think the rate of degradation in Canada and U.S. needs to be improved. But it's better than most every other country. So. You know, and again, and I'm not sure, I don't, I mean, certainly organic carbon is an important part of soil health, and that's the whole microbiome thing, too. And I've talked to, like, uh, Fertilizer Canada people that said, uh, I mean, in the developing world, if the organic carbon isn't up to 3%, they can fertilize it. They don't, the roots don't use the fertilizer as effectively. So I think that's the microbiome, having a healthy microbiome. That's an area that's incredibly complex. And we need, need to learn more about that. You know, you see these biofertilizers and things like that. Right now, they're spotily effective, right? They're kind of like um, supplements for humans. So we don't understand the underlying mechanisms. So they might work here this year, and they, but they may not work there, or they might not work here in two years. So I think because we don't understand how the plants and the microbes interact and, uh, and, and what the microbes are actually doing for the plants, we will in 10 years. Like I think the most complex, I've heard the most complex ecosystem in the world is the root microbiome. You know, the gut microbiome is quite complex, but it's protected. The root microbiome is out there <laughs> in nature. It's exposed. So I'm starting to work in that area, and I see how complex it is. And so I'm moving kind of slowly. You know, so when you say microbiome, for anyone who's not really familiar with the terminology or the science yeah. side of it, explain it in okay. layman terms. So all complex, well, all organisms, but let's just say humans and crop plants, have co-evolved with microbes for millions of years, and they have formed... I think, some essential relationships. So in humans, it's the gut microbiome, which is almost like it's another organ. It's incredible. I think it's essential for health. I think you would, you would not live if you didn't have a, a microbiome, or at least, a, you know, and in fact, a lot of diseases associated with yeah. it. So it's an environment of organisms right. that right. work so, together? Yeah, so your gut has all these thousands of different bacteria and probably some fungi that, um, that live in your gut and things get out of whack and you can have health problems. Plant roots particularly, I mean the whole plant has microbes that live in and on the plant, but the roots particularly because they're sitting in the soil which is a pretty rich environment for bacteria, fungi, and things like that, viruses. And so a certain subset of those will actually colonize the surface of the root, that's kind of the rhizosphere, and live there and impact root function. And some of them actually grow into the root and impact root function. So that's the microbiome of the root. And we're finding they're important for nutrient acquisition, for root health, for root growth, and for sequestering carbon. You, get, you can get more carbon in the roots. You can, and if you're doing no-till, you'll tend to keep that in the soil. So. 
So a healthy root system is kind of like a healthy digestive system yep, on yep, a person. Right. Okay. It's, it's the nutrient-absorbing organ of the plant, and the gut, the intestines, are the nutrient-absorbing organ of the, of the, the human or the animal. That's a good way to put it. So final question, we can make it a fun one. What's been a highlight for you since you've moved to um, Saskatchewan? Let's see, I think, I know it's kind of corny, the people. I find there's so many friendly people. Although I will condition that with these guys and their big pickup trucks drive me nuts. They're incredibly rude You're drivers. You're not the only one. <laughs> yes. And I talk to particularly Whitman. Anyway, we won't go there. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't get fast food much, but I was... You know, sometimes I go to McDonald's to get coffee and a breakfast because I'm in a hurry. And I've had, I think, twice people paid my meal. Oh, wow. That's you so know, nice. And I've never heard of that, but I've heard that happens here. I find other people at our institute. Yeah. To, so. And it's not somebody trying to hit on me. I'm too old for that. It was just somebody ahead of me. He said, oh, that person bought your meal. You know, it's weird because I've actually done that before. Yeah. Done that in the Tim's line. So I, I it, can't, it's a Canadian thing. <laughs> yeah, it is because in the U.S. only, I don't even think of it, you know, you know. So I just think I'm enjoying interacting with the people. So Yeah. And they always want to know, what do you think of Saskatchewan and Saskatoon? You know? Yeah, exactly. You know, it is a, I mean, it can be a harsh environment in the winter, right? But it's a beautiful place in the spring and summer, so. Yeah. You know. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for speaking sure. with I, me. Corny answer, but that's, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, it's honest, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. If you want to review any of the presentations in depth, we released a full digital edition of all the Plant Health Summit presentations. So go to topcropmanager.com and click Digital Issue to find out more. Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.